in another building. I know he's in another building, but I think it's the... Here we go. Okay, well, good morning. Did you have a good week? It's kind of crazy weather, wasn't it? It's just sort of, you got the extremes, everything from can't stand the heat to, you know, thinking about turning the heat on in the house. It was just borderline. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, a good week, nevertheless, to be able to just kind of come together. Let me uh, just go ahead and open in prayer, and, and we're going to jump into uh, our time of uh, lesson and sharing today. Father God, we just do praise you uh, this morning. Father, we just love you so much. And Father, it's just, um, even today as we even look at uh, joy and rejoicing, that Father, there's just no greater joy than just to be um, in your presence and uh, to know Jesus Christ and for all the blessedness that comes as a result of that. And I pray even today that uh, our awareness of the greatness of the blessings that we have in Christ, to be able to share in the intimacy of His sufferings. Uh, Father, that we pray that that the rejoicing takes uh, a renewed perspective in our lives. So I pray Your Spirit will lead today and guide as we know the promises that that it affords that and even today in our time of sharing that uh, ourselves would be encouraged and even challenged in our own uh, perspectives. And so we just commit this time to You. And it's always to your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, I was early. I was got up and getting ready to brush my teeth. And we all have our little quirks, things you know. But for mine is just sort of like when the toothpaste, when you really gotta get it out, you know. Try we try we want to be good stewards and resourceful. But for me, it's sort of like I like it when that tube is really full because you don't really have to, you know. Give it much of a squeeze and you get your toothpaste on it. <laughs> so, like, today was one of those pressure days, you know, where you had to kind of work it. And uh, I'm going to draw, draw a spiritual analogy to that, <laughs> if I could. Because in many ways, it's like a, um, similar to us. In other words, it takes the pressure in our lives to be able to find out what's inside. In other words, to get it out. It, it took a lot of work. And, and I, I want to submit that as a sort of this practical type of uh, example is that what's really on the inside of us. And it's not so much the fact that, because when that tube of toothpaste is full, you just barely can grab it and we kind of push it and it, we, it comes out. But what I'm going to submit is, is that when the pressure really has to be exerted and what that looks like in our lives, as far as the pressures in there, and that is specifically, I believe, pointing at those trials, the persecution, the things in your life that God places there, is that really what's inside of you. So it's really making me think, of course. It really makes me think a lot about that types of the pressures in my life and where this brings us. I found a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'd like to just read with you and share. Because I, it really got me thinking about uh, the very trials. And then when those trials come into my life, where do I go? Does, where does it drive me towards? Does it drive me to His Word? Does it drive me in prayer to Him? Uh, does it drive me to my knees at times? You know, what, Where does it take me? And this was the quote I wanted to share. Spurgeon explains this, this greatness of value or the true joy that we find that we can find in personal trials. He writes, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours almost might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and my pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. What do I not owe to the crucible and the furnace that bellows that have blown up the coals and the hand which has thrust me into the heat? I bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. 
I can bear my personal testimony that the price of that at the best piece of furniture that I have ever had in my house was a cross. I do not mean a material cross. I mean the cross of affliction and trouble. In shunning a trial, we are seeking to avoid a blessing. How profound. And the thoughts that I I was able to tie this in from the standpoint of this lesson is is that this theme of suffering that we've been looking at throughout this entire first letter of Peter, it just runs, as we even looked at last week, from the very beginning in chapter 1 all the way through to where we are here in chapter 4. But, not only is it the theme of suffering, but it is also this introduction to us to this true theme of glory, and these encouragements that Peter is constantly giving these believers over and over again, this assurance that they need. But, and this assurance is that one day they will totally be transformed for glory. And so, many times our perspectives are such, and it's almost like in this passage there's this eschological tension where there is this living in the now for the future. And what are some, many times is that we focus on the sufferings now without recognizing that it's rejoicing now, but it's also rejoicing later. And it's rejoicing more. So there's rejoicing both, but we put a contrast on it. It's sort of like pain and suffering now for future good and blessing. That's part of our problem. So with that is the depth of this thinking that we go through. Some of the questions that um, I throw out today, and we'll, as we go through today's lesson, we may just pause and, and just stop to think about some of these. But how does, is God effectively using you and I in our trials? And should the sufferings of Christ motivate us to rejoice while enduring our trials? And, I, and one of the great parts of this passage that I hope to get to today is this this reminder of the Spirit's presence in our suffering. And then the challenges that we have here and now with, again, this view to eternity. We're closing this out. And and what uh, Peter is doing is he's bringing back this reminder again. And as we looked at that, um, that passage last week in just an introduction... We couldn't help but go back to the, to the very, very beginnings of his initial salutations and this reminder that he's giving these believers of literally their anchor, and that is their salvation. And then the middle chapters of this living out, this conduct itself, that we saw in chapters 2 all the way through chapter 4. And so today our objective is, what does God want us to learn? And I'm going to specifically narrow it down today to, to this recognition that the completed sufferings of Christ and the continued sufferings of believers today, tomorrow, and every day that we are here on this earth is that they are being intimately related. And we often don't do that. And, and I believe in, in the, what, Jesus, uh, what Peter is saying very specifically when he talks about this partaking of Christ's suffering is that there should be this relationship that we would have in Christ's suffering. And we're going to break that down a little bit further as we go through this. So as we talked about last week, as we looked at the passage at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, there is this last reminder that he has that takes us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 11, where he begins again by referring to his readers as those endeared believers, to those loved ones. Someone want to read, uh, open up, if you haven't, move your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 12-19, and if someone could read the passage as an introduction to us as we get started in our passage today. Want to just go ahead and read? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon testing, as though some strange thing were happening there the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing also at the revelation of his glory. You are reviled by the name of Christ, spirit of glory. Oh, please. Okay. That, that's just what we hope to cover today. <laughs> Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not gained. But is to glorify God in this 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, less first. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is with difficulty righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the therefore? Those who also suffer according to the will of those to a faithful... In the two sections that we have here, is this today we want to just move a little bit quicker than we did last week by introduction, but jump into the passages, is that there's this expectation that we see in this first, first verse of the suffering and this reminder for that. And then this focus on the rejoicing that would come with that. So as we would develop a framework for how we approach suffering in our lives, the proper perspective is to be able to identify, first of all, that suffering is going to occur. Next week, or excuse me, in two weeks, because next week there is a congregational meeting, so we are not meeting next week, but we will meet the following week, is that we will follow this back up with an evaluation of the suffering and then this commitment of entrusting ourselves to God. So, Throughout the letter, as we've shared often, is that what Peter is continuing to say throughout the letter, in several, 15 different places at least, is that persecution is inevitable. The persecution is going to happen. In fact, when he is saying, do not be surprised, the surprise would be as if they didn't come. So we said last week. And again, obviously, when when. Peter would write this when he says, Beloved, do not think it strange or do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you. And here's my thought on this first part of it. Is that obviously we know, because up to this point, he continues to reference and even give specific examples of the persecution. Obviously, they were. But yet, even though they were, they needed reminders. They needed Assurance. Doesn't that sound familiar? Uh-oh. Sorry. Now, let's pause for a second and let me ask you a question. What, if, 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 if Peter makes this, this, do not think it's strange, in other words, the fact that he is saying do not be surprised, and obviously we know that they were suffering, what were they likely then expecting in their lives? And I'll, I'll rephrase that. What are you likely expecting in your life as a believer? I'm going to use the word likely, not what will, but what were you, what were you likely expecting? Or what? <laughs> Go on to the very, very beginnings of your thought process. Please, just share anyone. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, let me def- I'll categorize what you're saying in those things. First of all, you're saying, I mix it blessing. That's sort of what I thought I signed up for. This is like it's gonna, all of this great stuff is going to be coming. This is awesome. So there's blessing. Okay. Secondly, is that I heard one of the, like comfort. That's the easy street. I that's like this special benefit. I like the word benefit because benefit is always a positive thing, isn't it? It's like, well, what do I get? What do I get out of this? So we again, there was. I believe that they and you and I were like likely expecting that there's going to be this blessing, that there's benefit. But also, okay, let's go to the... I'm going like, wow, what a great deal. In fact, it's such a great deal that I even know that I have this divine protection. They were likely expecting that. And now, again, blessing, benefit... And, and divine protection. Were those not the three things that he keeps on reminding them about? Because they were expecting it. It just looked differently. Because we have all three. Don't we? We have all three. But again, I'm going to put us back to where we have this problem of contrast. You know what I'm saying? In other words, we, we're, we're saying, ooh, that's a whole different thing. I, I want that. Dave, don't tell us that we already have it now because I don't like what it looks like necessarily. And I believe that that's part of the heart of what he's going to get. And so therefore, the likely becomes will. <laughs> because they were already experiencing these things and what Peter is doing is he says, well, you know, let's just sit down and let me walk you through. Let me walk you through the times when there was specifically there was blessing and you missed it because you were looking elsewhere. Let me tell you about some times when you were looking for a positive benefit 
and I will show you that it was. Let me tell you about the times when you are looking to eternity for a divine protection, and let me tell you about the times when I did provide that protection in your life. Now, this, this contrast, I believe, was bound up. In other words, that, that, to this point that we will, that suffering is inevitable, I believe that that message is so pervasive and bound up in Jesus' teaching, all in Jesus' teaching. I'll give you some of these examples. First, in 1 John three thirteen, it says, Do not marvel, brethren, if the world, what? Hates you. 1 John 3.13. John 15.18, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it what? It hated me. The world hates you. The world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. <laughs> John 15.18. And 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul reminds all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. Not likely. (laughs) And so therefore, very clearly, that suffering is inevitable and embedded and bound up in all of Jesus' teaching to His disciples. So, why then can we expect suffering? Why can we expect suffering? Jesus said it was, right? It's because that is the price of discipleship. That is the price of... Why we can expect suffering is because we as believers, it is, it is the price of discipleship. Now, to a non-believer, that doesn't sound so good. In fact, it's like this unwelcome punch in the stomach or this prick itself of the conscience because it confronts them with their sin. That confrontation it translates into suffering to the believer because what it is, it's, it creates that animosity. What, what Paul's messaging he has is like almost like confront, and this is what you can expect, animosity. In other words, get into the fight. Pick the fight. Don't, from the standpoint of the, the proclamation of we have. So Jesus is teaching on this, this considering the cost is like one of my favorite starting points when it as far as why we can expect suffering. We can expect suffering because what we share in this room, and as all believers, is that we are disciples of Christ. But in that place of being a disciple, there is a process of this purging that goes on with that. And I believe that there is this counting up the cross, the counting the cost itself, that I think is, is critical. If you take a second and just look up with me, Luke chapter 14, and we're going to go to this familiar passage that you're, you've seen in Luke chapter 14. And I'm actually going to have us take, start a little earlier than that. Look at starting with verse 25. If someone could read 25 through 32. If anyone comes to me, father and mother, and does not carry his own cross, at that point, you cut the hit on the key things that I want to I want to cover. And thank you so much. At the very beginning of that, he is teaching what true telling us what does true discipleship look like. Okay, and I want you to make an observation here. Here we have this we have this big crowd, right? But what in this passage is that is Jesus trying to get a big crowd? Is his goal to get a lot of people to follow him? No, not at all. What his goal is, is that he wants what? True followers. And so what his, his goal is, is that he wants to make true disciples in this. And so what he, he does within that is he uses in his teaching this, this contrast that would say is, is that what would be the highest cost that would be would definitely sift out those. And so therefore, he goes right to the family. And he goes right to the family, and he talks about this statement for the standpoint of, when he starts to look at it, this hating. It was, I don't know about you, but when I read through this the very, very first times, I struggled with that, that part of the passage. 
Why, would, why did he do that? His intention was, is that not that you don't love those people, we do, but he is saying that it is always has to be, what? A lower or lesser type of love. And that he is saying that I do not want any half-hearted disciples. I want whole-hearted disciples. And so, in that, in that contrast, he even talks about this taking up your cross, and this is this picture that we have of true pain and even death. But I'll rephrase that. And I think at the heart of what he is teaching us is that he's saying, I want whole-hearted believers. And so therefore, count the cost. So, why can we expect suffering is because it truly is this price of discipleship. Jesus is teaching, he wants us to, he wants wholehearted devotion. That's what's behind this. You know, it's not just about uh, just the, the positive things. It is positive, but what Christ wants is something that is beyond that. It is this total devotion and commitment. That's what it looks like. And so by doing that, the suffering is going to occur. Because clearly that's what the message is that we've seen in here. So, we can expect suffering because it is the price of discipleship. As we start in this passage in chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, back to First Peter, Beloved, I do not think it's strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. These disciples, and this is no different than what we were talking about earlier, is that this term of beloved is is that these disciples, or excuse me, these believers in this situation, they still needed assurance. And the first part of this, this beloved aspect of it, is specifically pointing to a very, it's a different type of, of reference to. It is like a divinely appointed one, this beloved. And uh, looking at that term, it has this word of tenderness or compassion or affection and care that would be associated with specifically that term, beloved. But also taking it further, it is the very term that our Father, God the Father, used in describing Jesus, didn't he? When he said in Matthew 3.17, when Jesus was baptized, this is my, what? My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, this term that we see here, this beloved aspect of it, is, again, this very clear connection of this divinely appointed dear one, endearment. And so, suffering is God's will for those from this that He loves. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, I'll read this to you. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly, fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And it goes on. So Peter is again re- referencing this beloved. And it is God's will for those whom God loves, you and I as believers, that we will be persecuted and suffered. Whoops, to go back. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, you just go up a couple of verses in here, but it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, as God's chosen, that God loves you, it is this divinely appointed one. It is this a very special type of recognition. And so what Peter is saying by this is that he's reminding these believers that they are those that God loves. It's the assurance. My example last week was is that that endeared term that you would say when you're trying to communicate a message. And it would be when my mom was trying to get me to understand and I was blah, 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 blah. I wasn't listening. And then she would say, David, listen. That is this term of this beloved, and the, the emphasis behind his use of that is that I believe it was from the depths of his heart, his motivation was to tell them more and more about, again, the true perspective and that they would not be clouded in their perspective. 
that they would not need this continued reassurance. But I would submit is, is that you and I continue to struggle with the very, very same things. So it's the price of discipleship. It is also the difficulties that face many in our own lives. Peter says, do not be surprised. And what he's saying here is, is that don't get caught off guard. And our natural attitude in, in, is really is that we look at the very things that confront us in our lives as being something unusual or strange or abnormal. And yet, Peter has told us over and over again that these things were, were going. But may the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory of Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, after you have suffered a while. That's how he began the letter back in chapter 1. And he's again going full circle. And our attitude is such as that we look at these things as being unusual. Why did this happen to you? That is sometimes our question as believers. Why, did, why is God allowing this to happen to that person? We tend to get into make that kind of general statement. And what we're seeing clearly in Scripture is that God is sovereign over every circumstance. A passage in, in Colossians specifically points to is that he is above all things and everything that exists from that. In other words, that he has complete control over the balance of everything, including the the suffering in their own lives. And so Peter, what is he trying to stress? By don't be surprised. And what he's stressing is this mental readiness. It is what Michael was appealing to us last week to be ready spiritually for the word. I am, by the way, getting caffeinated a little bit myself here. So, so I'm a little bit, I'll be ready in about an hour here for this. It's vital for these believers. And what I love is that you can look at, like when you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13, chapter 4, verse 7, or chapter 5, verse 8, look at Peter's exhortations that are embedded in, in this this appeal to them to be alert. He is saying, don't be surprised. In fact, be ready for it. You know this is going to come. And so therefore, gird up your minds. Keep sober. Fix your hope. Be of sound judgment. Sober spirit. In all of those passages is this common link that we see to his stressing of mental readiness. In other words, what you believe, and if you are ready for these things, it will impact how you respond and how you behave, won't it? You know it's coming. You know when the the punch in the stomach is coming, because you're always ready. It's when you are not alert spiritually is when we get caught off guard, and therefore we simply are within the flow of life and saying, oh, why did that happen? Any thoughts, comments, feedback as we continue? When Paul was chosen as an apostle, the, the Lord warned him. In fact, he warned him in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, because he says, I will show him how much he must suffer, how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And then in turn, when Paul was confronted uh, on that Damascus road, and he was, Christ said, I will show him. This is his. Uh, the Lord talking to Ananias about specifically about what was going to be happening in Paul's life. Later, Paul in turn, he forewarns Timothy. And where he is saying, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. And so, going back to our question as far as how does God effectively use us in our trials, what are your thoughts? Kind of building off of what Mark was saying. Anything more? And the passage that comes to mind is in 2 Corinthians 2.15 um, and 16. Uh, I, that's the verse, I can read part of it because I have it down here, where he's saying that we as believers, that we are this fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma of from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And so in both situations is that a fragrance to the Lord means that it is what? It is pleasing to the Lord. And so, like in Mark's example, as far as like even sharing the gospel of Christ to non-believers, the very fact that you are doing that, it is pleasing to the Lord. 
It is not about what we anticipate would be the reaction to that. In fact, what I see in Scripture is that that's going to generate animosity because of Christ's name. It is the suffering that will come from the name itself. But our relationship causing us to stand under the pets of trial, not always proclaim that trial is the watching. How did you hold How did you stand under that pressure? You must be just the pressure. And then you get to proclaim mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus. So really, kind of what you're saying, even in the segue of this, is, is that God is using these things in our lives to really... It's part of a purging process, but also it reveals the genuineness of our faith. Um, because in this, he specifically talks about this fiery ordeal, Nick, and I think you, you've hit on something really key in here. The other thing, I, I'll just pull from what you said, is that it is suffering for the right things, for the right. You know, we, we see this thing, and this is suffering. It reveals, in this case, the true believer. Um, I'm not gonna. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent in here, but you guys know the, the, the know the uh, the parables of the soils, right? Okay. Let, let me just take you and talk out loud here about one of the the soils. Do you remember how Jesus used the illustration of of the soils that were scattered on stony ground? Okay. And so those that were what happened to the on those on stony ground? They they grew up quickly, right? But then what happened? Yeah, in, 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 his, in the parable, he says that the sun scorched them. The pressure, Mick is talking about, okay? The sun scorched them, and they failed in that. It was later in that passage in Matthew where he specifically looks at these, it makes this, this relationship, and uh, I, I just want to, just because I don't want to misrepresent that, it's in Matthew 13. Here's what he says. Those who receive the seed on a stony place, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Okay? So that's the benefit, right? That's the good news. You can walk out. We're encouraged. Yet he who has no root in himself, but endures only for a while... For when tribulation, Mick, what you just said, or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And then that's the contrast of that. And so I I illustrate that as an example of this genuineness of faith. Michael even referenced it again last week as far as why some may not engage because there's no root. They may intellectually know Christ, but there's... No profession, even. There's so many things that that cause that distraction in there. But what I'd submit in, in an, an example is here. You know, it, it, it's until you apply the pressure, you fully find out what's on the inside. It's a great, great comment point. Peter uses he refers to this um, this suffering and he re- specifically describes it as a fiery ordeal. It's a very descriptive term that speaks of a burning or pictures of furnace that melts down metal or to purge it. So I, I believe that there's two references within this culture itself is that they understood what this meant. It, um, when we see, and it goes back to chapter, uh, chapter 666, uh, verse 10, is that it, in that particular psalm, it talks about God has tried us with fire. <clears throat> has and this is this this crucible that that Spurgeon used in his quote is this crucible where these metals would be placed in there and it would be torched and heated up for the purpose of refinement in that. And this is this in symbolic of the affliction which the Lord designs for our purity. It's the purification process of those metals. It's this fiery type of ordeal, the reference to this word of fiery. And then specifically the relationship is how that purging needs to occur. And so therefore, Peter's saying, that's the good things. That's what Spurgeon was saying. And those are the, the worst days are the best days. I don't like it when the heat gets turned up. You know, we get uncomfortable. and every, Well, that's when it happens, believe it or not. That's when he's doing the best work in our lives is when he eats it up. So here's the good news. 
We don't like it when the Lord turns up the heat on the burner. But just remember, He's the one that's got the hand on the burner. He's controlling that for His good. Proverbs 27, 21, it, taught, it references the man is tested by the praise that is accorded him. And again, this is this testing that we see or this purging or this purification that we have. First Peter himself, Peter references, though in chapter 1, we've, we looked at that briefly last week where it says that, you, again, you are tested by fire. First Peter 1, verses 6 to 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So you can see the metal. That's this, how he's referencing that in, in his uh, words. And so as believers, we endure through the trials and the, the suffering, the, the, the challenges in our life, the adversity, because it proves the genuineness of our faith. And so therefore, the fiery trial serves or refers to literally the living of life in our faith. It is this purification of our faith that continues to get refined. In Matthew 13, 5 to 6 and 21, that's the, the reference that I used in Christ's illustration of the parable of the soils. Uh, the Proverbs reference. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, let me uh, read you another version of that. Let me. I, uh, no, it's a great question. Um, the refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. A man, and a man is tested by the praise accorded him. And so, what it, when it's this is, uh, it is not. It's 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 not referring to, um, you know, like a a value necessarily in this situation, but it is. Essentially, the very character of it. So, in other words, is the result of it is that when you are tested, what is left? This is this. The opposite of that would be, um, from the standpoint, is that we look at ourselves, and until we are truly tested in this, to me, that's this example that we see ultimately in in the cross itself in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes, please. So, what are you? What are you? What are you? I think that was the same. Thing. What are you? What are you saying? In other words, it is the genuineness of that that just keeps rising to the top. It's the purity, purity of it. Same thing. What you were saying earlier. Yeah. 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 And what people say. We're question. It's interesting. Then he's going to say that. <laughs> let me tell you something else too. That name, Jesus. That's not going to be a pleasant name. To, to, to throw around because it's going to, it says often in this passage he's going to say is that because of the name of Christ you're going to be suffered. Then you're going to suffer. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. This verb, this word happening indicates obviously that this fiery affliction is occurring by God's design. He is sovereign. And it happens, it's nothing is happening by accident in, in your life and my life. And that was that Colossians passage that I liked before, Colossians 1.17, that says, He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And that's a really interesting word, because it says that, obviously, is that He is above all things, but yet this word of consisting, it, it has like this definition here, that there is this ability to sustain. Christ has... As God, He has ultimately the complete control of sustaining the universe and maintaining every aspect of balance as it relates to His position of power in the very life's existence. Mm. Mm. So because of that, you know that, so then how could we struggle (laughs) with the circumstances in our lives? That come upon us. In other words, we we draw away from that conclusive uh, reminder, that evidence of that. Mark, that's why I I just like Abraham. He was this, this Dutch theologian that picked up a quote from him, where he just simply looked at this this total expanse, everything to Christ itself. It's His. 
It, that is mine. Whatever we can conceptually think, down to your example, I think that was a very appropriate. So, existence, everything. It's just that he's in control. And what, um, within this, as we start to see this build onto this, is that there's going to be the, the referencing and the movement in this passage that takes us to the Spirit. The Spirit's role in helping us understand that. Helping us through the various trials. Through both a power, the power of the Spirit in our lives, and that presence in our lives. So therefore, why would you think it's strange that there are things that are happening in our lives? Is what Peter would say. Why do you think it's strange? To make us... To us, like you said. Amen to that. It is all part of it. It's, there's nothing wrong. We, this is the greatness of God's Word, is, is that you see how the application of it right now. It's taken us to that place, and it, it's exposing. It, the very the heat is getting turned on. And in that process, it's, it's separating a lot of impurities in our lack of pure perspective. Yeah, let, let me let me build on that because um, I know you've you've you personally have shared a lot of different things that are happening uh, today. But let's just let's just go backwards a little bit. Let's rewind to this culture right now at that time for Peter. So I don't, we don't know. I don't know the specifics of the time frame. But what we do know is you have Nero that is reigning. And so did Peter write this letter like right before, or maybe during, or after, literally the burning of Rome? So not that it would be a play on words of that, but yet it was sort of like within that culture, it was very inevitable that you think you're getting suffering now, you just wait. It, it, because what we know is that for 200 years, the Christians were oppressed and persecuted to death. Okay, so now go forward. We can use all of the examples in Scripture, Mark, that you, you gave. That's where it drives me. It drives me to... to Cling to those examples that we have, to those specifically why God gives us the Word in, in these individuals. But I don't know. <laughs> like what Mark's saying, I don't know what they're... So therefore, I'm not going to be surprised. Whatever that is going to happen in our culture today, tomorrow, that I don't know. But I believe that there's a, an interesting parallel that we have to look at is, is that I don't know when that was written, but I do know that Rome burned. And per- Christians were persecuted to death. It was gr- gross. I mean, it was it, it totally, it was devastating in what they would do in some of the examples to those Christians, that they would torch them. And yet, that's not happening today. So what is it that is going to happen when we are here, alive? And is it tomorrow? Is it whenever it might be? And then, will you be surprised? It has to be supernatural. Yes. We, we don't have that capacity within our, our flesh. Yeah. It can only be the work of the Spirit in our lives. Amen to that. And so Peter just says, no, shouldn't, you shouldn't be surprised. And then he's saying basically in there, then our response to that is, you should be rejoicing. He says, rejoice in our, in our suffering. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This to degree that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, he says, keep on rejoicing. It's like, yes, keep on rejoicing that we have in there. And so from this, if we can expect that we're going to suffer, what Peter now is, the exhortation is saying, and therefore then, when it comes and when you're dealing with it, rejoice in it. That's the hard part. He says, keep on rejoicing amidst the trials. And so therefore, going back to those previous verses in Colossians, so therefore it doesn't really matter what it is. Anything in this world that that comes against us, if we are view it from the sake of righteousness, the cause of that ultimately will be rejoicing. Well, 
if you remember in the uh, in Matthew chapter ten, the Beatitudes, you remember that? And I'll I'll just I have a tab so I can go there. Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my, my sake. In verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Peter is saying is this is what your attitude needs to be. Your attitude needs to be when, of that of rejoicing. And the reason for that is obviously this reward in heaven will be great. Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 22 and 23 is another example from that. So this shapes and fleshes out our attitudes that we would have is are you rejoicing in your suffering? Anything that could come up against us, the sake of righteousness is the cause for rejoicing. In many believers' minds, what is happening in our lives should be thought of from the perspective of this contrast. And that's why I said this earlier. It is true that we suffer now in order to experience glory later. But in verses 12 and 13 of this, I believe Peter is clearly saying that there is a continuity that we have to recognize between this suffering now and this focus on rejoicing into the and so in other words what peter is saying and i'll restate this he is saying we must rejoice now in order to rejoice later rejoicing now to rejoice later Right, right. Oh, it is because he. This is he's been saying. In fact, it's exactly because he. If you look at the pre, what we talked about in the preceding verses, that was all about his the future glory, the future coming. So it, it's sort of, again that reminder of that. But he is saying, well. So we'll rejoice when he comes, when he's, and we're going to rejoice now in our trials. But we'll be able to rejoice when the world will win. And that's why I think that we're, we, we, where we lose it is that we're saying, well, this now is what's, whoa, it's too hard. There is not the continuity because it is, this is unimaginable almost to the degree of that future glory of Christ's second coming of this, what that looks like in the rejoicing. But at the same time, this is where it's challenged us because he's going to constantly keep saying, when they say, keep on rejoicing. X five. What what? Uh, I believe in in is the in the next part of the passage, where it talks about this the spirit of the Lord is upon us that gives us this rest. That is the what gives us the, the capacity to rejoice. Now, it has to be a supernatural work of the Spirit to see this continuity, to literally see and that we we can truly rejoice now in what's going on. That's a very interesting. And I wanted to, that's part of what I wanted to cover in this because I look at all, I look at the, the work of the Spirit. In other words, did, did Christ need the Spirit? And you see it's very specifically the, 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 the ministering of the Spirit in Christ's life. And what Peter is reminding us of it is that um, you have it. You've got it. Engage it. And in that then, we can see this continuity. And what it does is it just opens it up. Chapter 5 of, of Acts, I'll read it to you. And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this is what it says. So they departed from the presence of the council. They got beat up. And it says in verse 41 that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. So they were, they, they were rejoicing they got beat up for the name of Christ. It's this, this cloud of witnesses, right? Hmm. What does James 1 and 2 says? Count it all joy, brethren, when you encounter and fall into various trials. Consider it all joy. 
And that's is this point, I think, that we're all saying here to, in, in concert together, is that in our strength, it's, in, it's not possible. True rejoicing, joy, in, is the divine benefit of the believer standing in Christ. And it literally, as we see in Galatians 5.22, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit. It is this outflow. I'm going to stop here. It's 10.15. Council in the morning, other men in on a level that they had made them for extension. They were literally living life, incorporated in and guessing. But I talk about it and we study it. But until we are there at that level, that level any level of suffering, then can we drive up to McDonald's and I, I, we have I, an easy life? It's, it's, it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Suffer a little. It, it just, it's the suffering to what... it. It's interesting because... We'll get there. But when he says to the degree that you're suffering, think about what you just said about our culture. When Peter is saying that, to the degree that you are suffering, what does that mean? And I believe it has a direct relationship. In We have to be at this place of intimacy in Christ's sufferings. And what does that look like? And that's the challenge of modern day... Except for, you know, individual crises that... And as he began to preach, he started crying and weeping and, and, and praying. And he didn't know what was wrong. Or praying and working Christian experience suffering. So, so like, like, like the question, opposite from those churches over there? They're saying, well, are you guys not suffering in America? I'm saying, you know, in other words, because of that, because they would make a direct relationship to the suffering, to the rejoicing. But they know, they experience the rejoicing, to experience, but they That's what I'm saying. It's a paradox. That, that those pastors in those churches are saying, well, I mean, there cannot, I mean, that must be really a challenge for those churches in America to be rejoicing because there's no suffering. Interesting. Well, we will pick this up. Mark, that's going to affect our schedule because I don't know if I can get through verse 19 by one more one, one more week. So, <laughs> yeah. Nick, could you close us in prayer? Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Okay, next week. Uh, so we will be back in two weeks, and we'll just keep going at it. Thank you.